retail is a reflection of social change. What made a good store in 1990 and what makes a good store in 2020 is a reflection of some of the evolution of us, the evolution of money, the evolution of our access to information. My guest today is Paco Underhill. Paco is the founder of Envirocell, a global research and consulting firm. His clients include more than a third of the Fortune 100 list. Paco has been the expert behind the most prominent brands' consumer habits and market trends for the past 30 years. His latest book is titled, How We Eat, The Brave New World of Food and Drink. I recently sat down with Paco and we talked about how our food, from where it's grown to how we buy it, is in the midst of a transformation. And he shared with me what will soon be coming to our kitchen table. Paco, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it and have been looking forward to it since we spoke last week. Charles, thank you so much for, uh, for, for having me. The pleasure is mine to okay. be with you. Outstanding. All right, Paco, you've written, your latest book is How We Eat, The Brave New World of Food and Drink. But before we get to any part of this, I want to talk about a book that you wrote close to 20 years ago that really became the Bible of how retailers set up their stores, and that is why we buy the science of shopping. You wrote that book in 1999 or so, correct? That's correct. I mean, um, part of what was interesting is in 1996, I was the subject of a profile by Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker called The Science of Shopping, which became one of the most reprinted pieces in New Yorker history. And I had agents knocking on my door going, is there a book? Is there a book? And that's what that's that's what came out. And that and that book is now more than 22 years old. It still sells 60 to 100,000 copies a year. It's out in 28 languages. And Charles, do you know what the largest market for it was last year? Simplified character Chinese, 40,000 copies. Well, nice. Okay. So before we get into the book, uh, I think the key thing here is a lot of a lot of what you bring to the game, no one ever real, really quantified before, which is how we walk into a supermarket, why we go to certain shelves, why we walk to the right. You basically had teams of people observe consumers' behavior and then came out with a science, if you will, of why we buy. Is that more or less right? That's correct here. When I have stopped off, uh, stepped off Charles into the world of retail, almost by accident, merchants had two tools. One was the tools of media research, which was asking people questions. You could do it in a focus group, you could do it in a survey, you could do it online. But I knew as somebody involved in environmental psych that what people say they do and what people actually do is often different. And the second tool people used is sales research, which is very valuable, but it tends to be a catalog of your victories. And one of the key aspects to being a merchant is not just understanding where you're winning, but understanding where you're losing. And the fact that we were able to come to a table with some very practical issues where here is something you can do in a week, here is something you can do in two weeks. Here is something you can do in a month. And here's something you should think about doing next year. Was a was a revolution. Okay. Now, many of us have stepped into supermarkets or stores or any type of brick and mortar. I'll talk about online just a few minutes from now. But many of the things that you've uncovered or you observed 
that are now implemented and consider you wouldn't open up a retail store without them. What would be the top three things that every retail store has because of you? Okay. Um, three things here. First is um, understanding how our eyes work and that the way someone sees at 20 and the one someone sees at 70 is predictably different. As we age, the lenses in our eyes yellow. The way you and I see color and the way your children see color is different. Okay. Second is that 90% of us are right-handed and we, we tend to pick things up with our right hand and we tend to push with our left hand and therefore understanding a counterclockwise circulation pattern. But the third one here is understanding that one of uh, two of the fundamental issues in consumer behavior. One is driven by gender, meaning the way your wife does some of her shopping and the way you do some of your shopping is different based on male and female. But the other corollary to it is gener generational, meaning that at our age, Charles, 80% of our weekly purchases are the same thing. We've already decided, we've made choices. But if we think about a 20, 25 year old, much less an 18 year old, they are still deciding on what it is that they are, that is them. Gotcha. So now, quick question that just jumps to the front of my mind is I walk into Costco and I don't know if that's a little different or what have you, but on the right hand side, I, I, I know 90% of us are right-handed, but on the right-hand side are huge, huge 65-plus-inch uh, TVs. Is it intended that I grab them or I take them, or do I look to the stuff on my left-hand side, which is pretty simple, like soaps and grabbable products? Why do they have, why does Costco have huge TVs on the right-hand side as soon as you walk in the store? You know, there's a wonderful expression in French, uh, which is je vous propose. So much of what greets us at the door is to plant the seed of, oh, I never thought about that. Or I walk in the door and there's a huge display of, of Coke products. And I'm going, well, Coke's not on my list, but my kids are coming back from summer vacation. Do I want them drinking beer or should I get some Coke to put in their re refrigerator. One of the keys of visual merchandising is to, is to insert something in your head. And that is to get you thinking about it. What? That TV? That's amazing. It's huge. And it's only $800. And as you move through Costco, you start thinking about that TV. And maybe you don't get it then, but when you come back two weeks later, you go, man, I think it's time for me to get a new screen. Mm -hmm. So they're not looking for the impulse sale right there as if they would have, let's say, candles or, or their famous uh, brownies or what have you, or their corn muffins. <laughs> they're basically, stores are manipulating you to plant ideas into your head so the next time you do come, or even maybe later on in the store, you'll come back and purchase that item. Is that more or less right? I'm Charles, there is, there's another compli complicated process here, which is that so much of the position on the floor is often driven by slotting fees, meaning that 
that manufacturer, whether it's Coke or whether it's Sony or whether it's Samsung, has gone, I want to be up front and I'll pay for the right to be there. So I, part of those choices are both done by Costco, but they're also done in the ne negotiation in the home office across the buying buying table. Gotcha. So you came and you observed shoppers, really observed them, because you're right, you know, studies have shown all the time, people always overestimate how much they exercise and always underestimate how much they eat in terms of counting calories. So to trust people, what they say and what they do are two different things. Totally get that. So you observe them. You had cameras in the stores. You had all these things. My question to you is this, Paco. From a retail perspective, I totally get what you do. It's phenomenal. As a retailer, as a retail customer, how am I supposed to view all this manipulation? Are you, are you sharing this information so I can learn to be a better shopper and to watch out for certain tricks out there? Or... Are you basically giving this book and this information to retailers to say, how could they get more well, money out of Charles? Well, part of what we have to recognize is that I tend to write books for a popular audience. Okay? Meaning that, yes, it why we buy is used in business schools and design schools, but it's also read, read by the broader, broader public because it's an interesting and funny book. Part of what we have to recognize here is that the premise of a retailer is to sell you stuff, okay? I think uh, about the history of modern retail and it goes back to the founding of the department stores in the mid 19th century. Up until that point, Charles, a merchant expected you to buy if you walked in the door. And that almost all sales where you came up to a counter and said, this is what I want. When the department store opened, people were invited to come in and look. And I think it was one of the engines of social mobility because people would come in and see what the rewards of economic change were. And that prompted them to be able to start businesses, to go different places. But it also created a science, which is how do I present things well? How do I cluster objects? If I go back to Zara and Mango, the two Spanish, who were going this top with this bottom with these accessories. If I was talking to a major merchant today, you want to sell backpacks in August, maybe merchandising them with some school books in it is a very good idea. I mean, Part of what we're looking for is we as shoppers have responsibility for our own behavior. We have responsibility for what our purchase habits are. One of the aspects about being a mature person is going, I have some behavioral issues, which I take responsibility for. Should I blame a merchant for somebody who has shopping sickness? The answer is, I don't think so. But in terms of being able to say, I'm going to make your shopping trip as enjoyable as I can. I'm going to make it easy for you to make your selection. I'm going to give you a basket to be able to get your stuff out. And I'm going to pay attention to the amount of time that you have to wait, because I understand that wait time comes in three forms, real time, perceived time, and some combination of the two. 
And if you like what you're being offered and you like how it's being offered, the chances are you're going to come back. But what actually goes in your basket and what goes into the trunk of your car is your decision. Got it. Okay. I want to step back a bit. One amazing businessman, which most people have no idea about, which I'm sure you're totally familiar with, was Saul Price, uh, who passed away at 93 years old, started FedMart, uh, uh, Costco. He, Sam Walton learned from, uh, from Saul Price. Uh, Costco was founded from Saul Price. This is amazing, revolutionary way of looking at retailing. Here's a guy who just learned it on the fly. What made him so successful in terms of, of, of creating a, an environment where people, like you said, they were, back in the day, you went up to a counter and there wasn't much ready to wear stuff. There wasn't, you, you were expected to, I'd like to see, buy five pounds of sugar or three pounds of this. What did he do that just changed everything? You know, Charles, um, let me answer that question completely differently. Okay. I want to answer that question. If you go to Paris or you go to London, um, the role of being a merchant was a respectable profession. You had a long history of merchants selling to an aristocracy. If you come to the US, merchants and retail tended to be a category for a lower middle class immigrant family because they were locked out of the broader world of banking and whatever by the fact that they were immigrants. So whether it's looking at Bloomingdale's or um, others, part of what you look at is merchants who had it in, in their bellies. Okay? They were merchants who started, they had instincts, and they were processing things from their belly to their eyes. And um, I, I think of, you know, the person who started Costco, who invented Kirkland products and took the concept of a house brand to be something that you were ashamed of buying to something that you were proud to buy be, because it showed how smart you were, that you were spending your money well, not that you were compromising on what the quality of and that white box that you pushed up and that you were, you know, buying with, with food stamps. There is one of the things about uh, American retail is that if you go back to its origins from Bloomingdale's to Macy's to uh, CVS to whatever, there is generally at the start an immigrant family who starts out and just grows it. And they do it by incredible hard work. They do it by leadership. One of the challenges though about uh, uh, American retail is that often when the founder goes, the resulting bureaucracy sometimes gets a little stale. We can look at, you know, Sears or Montgomery Wards. We look at here at the US and we look at the lineup of the top 10 merchants starting in 1960, 70, 80, 90, a remarkable number of them, 10 much less 20 years later, are not there anymore. I think we have to recognize something, Charles, which is really interesting, which is there are biological constants that stay the same. And we just talked about them earlier, aging of eyes, some issues of gender, our right-handedness, but also retail is a reflection of social change. What made a good store in 1990 and what makes a good store in 2020 
is a reflection of some of the evolution of us, the evolution of money, the evolution of our access to infer, infer information. I often say that retail is about birth, life, death, and compost. Compost. So, so you, and, you, look, you look at someone like Sam Walton who revolutionizes, revolutionizes retail, you know, pile them high and watch them fly. You know, he comes up with that whole concept that he learns from Saul Price to take goods and uh, cheap goods and, and just pile them up and just watch them sell. You don't have to put them out. Displays weren't that important, that kind of thing. Uh, these are all instinctual. These are just smart people just figuring all the stuff out. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I wrote a biography of Sam Walton here, uh, which uh, for a magazine article, and it was a, was a wonderful exercise for me to go back and read some of his thoughts and read some of his, Sam, I, I, I appreciated something that starting in small town uh, uh, America, he recognized that his core customer was a single mother raising her children. And the degree to which he could offer her the goods to be able to raise her family in a way that was healthy and 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 well meant that everybody else would come too. And one of the things about Walmart is Walmart's done actually a very good job of evolving with change. It started off as a company, as you said, stack it high and watch him fly, because Walmart's success at his launch was trucking was getting stuff to the store at the best possible price in the least amount of time and getting it out the door. Today, Bentonville is a remarkably small cosmopolitan city. Walmart has done a remarkable job of harvesting the best of their uh, brands from outside the US, from Mexico, from India, from the UK, from China, and bringing them all in. And they've done a nice job about changing with time. And that the evolution of the Walmart store from where Sam started to where it is now is a reflection of good leadership and a progressive vision. So, so looking at the retail landscape, and you're right, you know, if back, you look at some of the oldest retailers, uh, for example, uh, Brooks Brothers started in 1818, Lord and Taylor started in 1826. These companies are no longer in the same form. Uh, Brooks Brothers uh, dramatically changed. Lord & Taylor is no longer here. Uh, Macy's is still around. Bloomingdale's is still around. Saks is still around. Barnes & Noble started in Barnes and Noble started 1873. They're gone. Sears started in 1886. They're gone. Uh, what makes, why do some retailers survive and thrive and others just become, you know, just in the dustbin of history? I, I, I think it's about understanding what should stay the same and what should change. And I think also within the 21st century is recognizing that there are a series of things that are evolving. First, the connection between our eyes and our brains, courtesy of screens has, has, has shifted and therefore understanding the evolution of sight. Second is the evolution of gender. I don't mean to make any religious or moral judgments, but one of the most seminal issues in our species since we tamed fire is birth control. We started off selling women food, cosmetics, and apparel, but I know now from having worked across the broad 
industry that whether you're a hardware store or whether you're a technology store, the presence of women on the floor is really critical. And that, that shift here, I think is a very interesting one. The third one is what is global and what is local? Meaning that there are dresses that'll fly off the shelf in Dallas that nobody touches in Philadelphia, okay? And under, understanding what that process is. Uh, the fourth one is the role of time. And particularly in a post-pan world where so many of us are multitasking and particularly for the women within our culture who are both trying to make a living, trying to take care of their kids and trying to take care of their, their, their homes, that the role of time is something that is factored in to both online shopping and shopping within the physical world. And then the final issue, which I think is, again, a really poignant one, is that we passed over a magic moment in the late 1990s, where up until that time, the overwhelming majority of global wealth was in the hands of an aristocracy. Today, if I look at the 20 wealthiest families across the world, 19 out of those 20 earned their money in the course of their own lifetimes. And whether you're talking about Jack Ma or Carlos Slim or Murkesh Ambani or you know, Warren Buffett here, part of what that has meant in the context of retail is that often in order to sell, I also have to educate. Why does this thing cost one price and this thing cost three times as much? Those are all things that, that factor into the, to the wonderful world of retail. And those guys who pay attention and start figuring things out and start going to the front lines and, under, and understanding that the line between the physical and cyber world doesn't exist anymore. It's, a, it's being a merchant in the 21st century, I think of as the Chinese character for chaos is the combination of danger and opportunity. You know, and yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, as, an, as an investor, and I'm always looking at um, all sorts of businesses, and retail is a pretty simple business to figure out. But I want to tell you, over the years, I have not been that successful finding retailers with staying power. You know, one company I, I really, really liked back in uh, 2004, 2005, was Bed Bath & Beyond. They were just a category killer. They were just doing everything right. And uh, now they're just, you know, they're, they're, on the, they're, they're on the seat of their pants. They're flying there. You know, their whole strategy, they just got rid of their CEO. Their whole strategy of cutting all these coupons uh, from other brands. They brought in private label, which alienated people who were looking for Mikasa. <laughs> you know, people walked in, right. they'd look for the brands. So they just were so out of touch. And then you look at JCPenney, for example. You had Ron Johnson, who was brought in as the savior to JCPenney. He did a bang-up job with Apple, with the Apple stores, highest gross per square foot, destroyed JCPenney. And then you have Costco, and they're so much better than BJ's. I, you know, I look at this area, and I just have to, have to agree with Warren Buffett that retailing is an extremely hard business to stay on top for a long while. Uh, true, and having, having worked with every single one of those companies that you have just mentioned here. I, I, would, I would agree. I think there are a couple of things here, Charles. I am talking is one of the problems that big American retail has had is do I pay attention to Wall Street or do I pay attention to my customer? Do I 
am I committed to change when change in the broader world of retail is, is going to take me longer than one quarter to be able to execute? Okay. Um, I know, for example, in the broader world of shopping malls, that I can go to the American shopping mall industry and point to what other people are doing in other parts of the world where it isn't shopping, it's alls. It is where I can shop, I can work, I can recreate, and that the shopping mall may have a preschool in it. It may have doctor's offices, may have a dentist office, may have yoga that doesn't necessarily pay major league rents, but they do drive traffic. And that if you go to Europe, you go to Australia, you go to parts of Asia, that that combination of things has made a modern 21st century community. But you go to you know, uh, Simon Properties or whatever, and that change to be able to incorporate housing, put in a supermarket, put in a drugstore, think about a more progressive relationship to your tenant mix is a transfer transformation that's often a minimum of two years. Okay, so, so let me ask you this, Paco. Let me ask you this. The the I, I went to a retail store just yesterday, Michael's. I needed paint. I do oil painting. I needed uh, some paint. And I never step foot in any of these stores. It's a pain in the ass for me. I have to go. I have to drive. I have to go into the parking lot. Then I have to go in the store and convoluted aisles. I hate it. I hate shopping. I guess I'm a typical man. hate shopping. And then when you get there, I have to spend time looking for the exact brand as well as color. And guess what? The color and brand I wanted wasn't there. What a waste. What a time suck. Much easier for me to go online, click, click, click. I get in 48 hours. What is the future of retail brick and mortar? Okay. I think part of what we're looking for here, here, Charles, is recognizing that retail is both a place to shop, but it is also a modern distribution center. And that if we think about it, almost all of the online delivery services work really well in a gated community in San Jose, and they don't work particularly well in parts of Brooklyn, much less East St. Louis. One of the challenges that the broader uh, retail industry has is looking at the distance between the truck bay in the back and the trunk of your car in front. We know that in the 20, 21st century with supply chain management issues, that I can take a typical Walmart, Costco, Michaels, and shrink it. I want you to do some of your pre-shopping online and be able to pick out the things that you want, but also to understand that while you may want the colors and whatever, that there are things about the paint, the, the paint brushes, much less the pre-stretched canvases that you would like to see before you buy. And understanding in that hybrid process is part of where our modern shopping is going to go. So you see this as a hybrid, which is obvious, right? There, there, right. you know, you, the growing of Amazon, uh, the growing of e-commerce, and those companies that are able to do that and do it do it well, are you know this hybrid model? They're doing right. well. Like for example, Bed Bath did not have a hybrid model. Their 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 system was antiquated. Uh, I just know that because I use I still read their read their uh, annual reports. Their systems were antiquated as well as their uh, pick up at the store, their hybrid, your order online, pick up the store was really terrible. So they're suffering. But you're telling me that I need a retail store, I need a retail, um, a brick and mortar uh, to do what now? I'm not understanding. Why do I need to go? Okay. I don't need to go to find indie yellow paint 
to actually see it and touch it. I could order it, don't like it, go and return it. In fact, I could walk into Kohl's for Walmart or go into, um, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, Whole Foods, and I could return there. They make it very easy to return. Why am I going through this whole process of going to a brick-and-mortar store? Well, some of it is recognizing that there are so many things, particularly for consumers who are younger than you are, that are, I need to be able to go look. I need to be able to see what the range of stuff is. I need to be able to touch, smell, and whatever before I start to decide what it is. Just as we said earlier, when we reach a certain age, 80% of our purchases are often the same thing. And you ask the question, why do we need to go back to a store? But that is, again, going back to that question that we talked about earlier, which is generational issues. But you're telling me younger people are, are going to stores, are going to retail? Younger, younger, younger people are still hungry for that infor- information to be able to help them make their choices. Really? Well, I, I know my boys. I have boys ranging from 32 to 21. Uh, I don't think they ever, the only, uh, the only retail store I think they walk into is, 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 uh, is Apple, you know, to, to, okay. to get a product or to exchange a product or to fix a product, but everything else, if they can order it online and the store's down the block. I have one son who literally lives maybe 50 feet away from a, uh, from a target targets and he orders from Amazon. He says, I don't even, we just come, the doorman takes it, goes downstairs, finish, I'm done. And he uses, he uses all these other stores as, as, uh, as return places. Okay. Well, Charles, lucky that you have boys. I have one girl. <laughs> I have one girl. <laughs> I have, I have, I have stepdaughters. And uh, do the stepdaughters go into stores? The answer is yes. Um, I think we have to recognize here that um, one of the things that retail is is a reflection of social change. We also have to recognize that even before the pan pandemic hit, that the U.S. was overstored. Oh my gosh! Overstored is overstored is, yeah, is, is, is was 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 that's an understatement. That need... It was an understatement. Okay. You had so many brands that stores that were just. I, I used to look and I used to tell my wife when they came up with this business plan. What what, what were they thinking? This store's not going to be. She goes, "Oh look, there are people there." I go, of course there are people there. They're dropping price in order to attract customers. It can't. And these stores have just gone away, and it became. Niche after niche after niche and get small. It's just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, you go out. There are a lot of vacant strip malls and a lot of vacant uh, you know, B and C malls out there. And it's a it's a reflection of being overstored. But I think it's important to recognize, Charles, that we still consume stuff. We still need to be able to see stuff. We still often need we are a analog species in that we still need to touch, smell, and taste stuff. And yes, I can order it and return it, but if you live in an urban setting, or you live in East St. Louis, or you live in Harlem, in that the, the act of being able to do that is very, very different than if you live in a suburban community in New Jersey. That's true, I'll grant you that, I'll grant you that. So let me ask you another question, Paco. You and I sit down for lunch and we draw on the back of a napkin because I'll, I'll supply the money. You supply the brilliance. Paco, you're the retail master. No one knows this market as well as you. In fact, you wrote the book on it. Okay, now, I want you to come up with a brilliant idea of, of, for retail, of a product we can sell, how we design the store. It's all up to you. What would that be? What would it look like? 
I think one of the things that is very interesting that I've seen in other parts of the world is doing a better job of bundling. Explain. Okay? Bundling means that if you if you walk into IKEA in the US, you see this dresser, this bed, this whatever. If you walk into Etna, which is the the Brazilian knockoff of IKEA, there is a price on each object. There's a price on on the room. If you come in and love the room, we can do it for you. So wait, you wait, you're, say, you're saying IKEA, right? That's you're just pronouncing it different, or that yeah. looking at a different store? Well, uh, uh, this is the way the Swedes pronounce it is IKEA as opposed to IKEA. Okay, so I'm American, so I'm looking at IKEA. Okay, good. If okay. I say IKEA, I don't think anyone's going to tell me where the heck that is. Okay, so I went to IKEA. You're telling me IKEA and this other store name? What was the name again? Etna. Etna. It is. It is a Brazilian knockoff. Okay, so. You're saying Edna is basically packaging the room, this room for $4,000, and Ikea is giving me the Billy Cubbies and the whatever name they call something else. They're giving it to be piecemeal. So you're saying- that That's correct. All Ikea correct. has to do to be, a, to be a more progressive in terms of, progressive, what a bad word, and to be, to be more forward in terms of their retailing is to come up with a one package price for the living room? Is, is is giving people that option of being able to walk and say, I love that room. And they go, well, you can buy that whole room at this price. Just in the same way, for example, is wouldn't it be better in the apparel industry in the 21st century to be able to organize stores by size rather than by brand? So I have a store so, just extra large. I want extra large polo you have a store that might, or, or particularly in the women's apparel business, is this is a store that specializes in sizes 10 through 16. So you're telling me there was none of that? They know any of these junior stores that they used to have, these junior retailers or these? Uh... Well, part of what it is, is if you go into any department store or whatever, it's all organized by by brands or, or outfits rather than going, man, if I'm in a crush for time, I want to be able to go in and say anything in this store would is probably going to fit me. So I need I can spend my time picking out what is good for me. Okay, so your best idea, Paco, for our business idea for Paco and Charles's venture. I'm telling you, you could do anything you want. You're telling me, you're, you're not really telling me yet. But one great idea that you have is we create a store by size for a certain product, like ladies' dresses. Right. For example, right? Are we if females or, would it be to females? Would, would it be to females because we can do they shop more if we had the choice? Well, females are one of the evolutionary things within the context of our broader order is that females are stepping into professions where they need uniforms. And for a man stepping off into the world of employment, uniforms are reasonably easy. It's pants, it's a it's a, a Oxford cloth shirt, um, and it's you know loafers or something. If you're a woman and you're stepping off into the world of banking or insurance or something, the the prerequisites are are different, and the way you're judged are different. And that often it is not only is it the the outfit, but it is the accessories that define who you are. For example, let me just give you an 
example, if you go in to often a jewelry store in the Middle East, there is often a dressing room in the jewelry store, meaning that they have recognized that their client isn't a man buying for a woman, it's a woman buying for herself. And that if she can come in and bring in the outfit that she's going to wear, whether it's to work or the wedding, and be able to get the jewelry that accessorizes it well, it's a very different equation. So, so tell me now, what, what, I, what idea are we doing? What, give me your best retail idea now. I think the best retail idea now is to find ways to be able to get local and to be able to be solution selling. And that solution selling is something that's going to attract somebody away from the Amazons and whatever, where they're frustrated about what they're getting and their limited selection that doesn't always have to do with what it is that they're looking for. Got it. So you're, 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 so, so that's going to be a big differentiator between a brick and mortar and an online uh, Amazon, for example. So I can walk into a store and it's be, it's more specific. You're talking, you're talking basically specialty stores, but to a, to the nth degree, right? That's right. And it's, it's, it is, it is localizing and it is the store that is both the store, but in a way it's also a bit of a clubhouse. Mm. Okay, so Panko, with the few minutes we have left, you bring up a really good point. Tell me what magic pixie dust dust does Apple have to create a retail retail stores with the highest, I believe, gross per square foot? And I went to a mall a few years ago. The Apple store had a line of people waiting outside before the gate was even up. And I walked down to the Microsoft store and they were basically inviting me in there because there was no one in there. What brilliance, what, what, what magic did Apple have or do they have that, that no one's really copying? Do you know who in Virusel's largest client is? Who's, who's, uh, I would say Apple. <laughs> so that genius is, I'm staring right at him. So what, 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 what are you telling Apple to do? that other retailers just are not getting the message because if i'm microsoft and i look at these stores okay i'm just saying my gosh why can't we just copy this i think there are a couple of issues there i first of all um if we look at the difference between apple and microsoft um apple sells solutions and they sell it to a ubiquitous cross-section of people that they also learn something from sephora where Sephora stopped, recognized, rather than selling you nose to nose across a counter, it put the salesperson and the customer on the same side of the counter. And that the, the act of selling or the act of solution, understanding solutions become, became much more collegial as opposed to selling. Um, one of the things that almost all of the technology stores have struggled with is particularly in a post-pan world, there's a certain number of people who are standing at the door angry because they've been unable to solve the problem over the phone or online, and they've realized that they, they have to come to the store to do it. And with the Genius Bar at Apple, Apple has done a very nice job of being able to understand who it is that's walking in the door and how can I help you get out the door with your problem solved. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's just it's, it's about as simple as that, right? So it's so I walk into stores like I went into Michael's. I walked out angry. Uh, here yep. I came. I traveled or you know, looked, and I was just pissed anyway because I just found it. You know, I, I, here's the deal. I I didn't really want. I didn't really need the paint for that day. I might have wanted to paint later in the day. I could have waited 40 hours, but I said, you know what? Let me just go anyway. It's only about 10 minutes from the house, and my wife had came along. She needed something else. But just the whole act of doing it was just, I don't know, it, was just, it just seemed so inefficient. It seemed a terrible waste of my time. Yet, to go to the Apple store to replace a product or buy a product, it seems so, it seems there's nothing easier. It is, uh, and also that the number of things that Apple sells is so much different, smaller than all of the things that Michael sells you. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, Apple's has has focused, and that is again one of that topics that we just talked about is retail being focused. So why don't why don't retailers just pick up this? this, this you didn't mention anything here that's uh, that's rocket science. Why are they many of them going in the opposite direction with tremendous? amounts of inventory and and um, and selection and and confusion as you talk about focus it's the exact opposite what they're doing you walk into a store I don't know I, I'm not a woman and so I don't shop the way a woman does but I walk into a store and, and I just want to get out of there as quick as possible I think one of the things that I keep stressing to merchants is is there a way to be able to exercise your curatorial judgment inside a store um, let me just give you an example. Have you ever been to the uh, design store at the Museum of Modern Art? No. In 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 New York? No. Uh, that's one of the industries that I think is is on the cusp of rev revolutionizing retail, meaning that they have recognized it. Yes, on the one hand, they are selling souvenirs, but on the other hand, they are selling to a sophisticated public, and it is a combination of the buyer picking potential items out and the curate, curatorial staff collaborating. Wait, hang on a second. It, is this the store, because I remember there used to be one at JFK where they have like um, um, ancient uh, Egyptian, I don't know, vases that are modern that you could, you know, replicas, is that what it is? You know, there are, um, there are a series of museum stores. One of my favorites, is at the Peabody Essex Museum in in Salem, but you 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 go to the Museum of Modern Art, you go to the American Museum of Natural History. Yes, they're selling souvenirs, but but they're also selling things that have a curatorial judgment to to people who have a sense of uh, appreciation. Mm. So that so that and, that that consumer that that retail client walking in is extremely motivated is is motivated and knowledgeable mm, I can and see that, yeah. you know you can you can say here is this beautiful crystal it's 1899 dollars, and you don't have to walk out the door with it we'll ship it to your hotel much less to your home but could you do could those stores do scale um, some of those stores are doing extraordinarily well. Amazing, amazing. In the few seconds we have left, Paco, last question for you. What, which retailer do you think is at the top of their game and should do well for the next three to five years, doing everything right? Well, obviously we have we have talked to, we have talked to about some of them here. We have talked about some of them. So you're not going to piss off uh, any of your clients. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm, um, you know, I, 
I am a uh, I'm a happy customer of Costco. You know, at at you know my age, I talk about buying smart. Um, am I buying Kirkland products? Yes. On 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 the other hand, I wish at Costco that there was a Kirkland section so I could shop all the Kirkland products all in. By one the way, place. by the way, brilliant. You know, I I Kirkland I think is twenty five percent. That folks, that's Costco's private brand. They do 25 to 26% private label, much better margins, and their products are fantastic. In fact, there were whole sites showing uh, the uh, behind the scenes, like this product you bought Kirkland is really a knockoff of so-and-so made in the same factory. Like you can't, They're interchangeable. In fact, just tell you now, I'm wearing uh, Kirkland pants now that I bought that are knockoffs of Lululemon for like $15. I just love Costco. That store is just absolutely amazing. There are people who follow on Instagram who constantly are putting updates. It's the treasure hunt, but the display, I, I can't speak enough about Costco. They're just okay. such a fantastic store. One, I think there, there could be a Kirkland section within Costco, which I've seen in Carrefour and other places across the world. The other thing that I keep asking for at Costco is addressing them to be able to try things on. And the third is better signage so I don't get lost if this is a Costco I only visit twice a year. I love it. I love it. By the way, dressing room would be huge. Would be huge. I, I don't know why they don't have one, but I guess they want you to come back. If it doesn't fit, come back. Every time I've ever returned anything, I've always spent more money on the way up. It's just absolutely amazing. <laughs> Everything I've ever returned, I get the thing, they put on the credit card, and I'm there already, and of course you need another 36-pack of Coca-Cola. But uh, that's it. Uh, folks, the name of uh, Paco's latest book is How We Eat the Brave New World of Food and Drink. This is the man. If you want to know anything about retailing, I highly, highly recommend his books. They're enjoyable. Uh, Paco, it sounds like you you wanted to be a screenwriter at one point. I'm reading some of these here. They sound like plays. You actually have the script. You know, Charles, uh, uh, Simon and Chester did a great job hiring actors to do the audio version of that book <laughs> where actors are playing out that 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 script and the answer is yes um i am working on a script beautiful about something completely different outstanding ladies and gentlemen the amazing paco underhill how we eat the brave new world of food and drink is his latest book he also has a fantastic book that's been out for 20 plus years and a couple of revisions already is why we buy the science of shopping paco thanks so much for being on the show i greatly appreciate it and i can speak to you for hours here thanks so much Charles, Charles, my, my pleasure. Thank you. Great, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.